Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Oliver Cromwell. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Rats Sorry, I don't know why I did that. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Uh, welcome to Rats Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. But with a weird one. Oliver Cromwell, who, mm. of course, is very specifically not a king, which makes him, as we'll find out, a bit of a tricky one to review in place. But yeah. nevertheless... Protector factor. Protector factor, yes. Yeah, not quite as uh, catchy, saying, is it? No. Anyway, Oliver Cromwell is born in 1599. He's the son of Robert Cromwell and Elizabeth Stewart, And he doesn't become king in 1649, when Charles Mm -hmm. I is executed, at which point he's about 50 years old. And in terms of his relationship to Elizabeth II, there is no direct relationship to Elizabeth II. Ah, should be relieved. The closest I can get is that the Duchess of Kent is a direct descendant, but there's no blood link because she marries into the royal family. He's of middling stature, about five foot six, long nose, chestnut brown hair, menacing brow. Um, He's got quite strong and robust body. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's quite strong and imposing, increasingly impressive, but of course he's most famous for his warts. Yeah, he looks like Lemmy from Motorhead. And apparently <laughs> he wanted to have warts and all portraits, so they're just, they're right there. External appearance is completely trivial for a man like Oliver Cromwell, the Puritan, he doesn't care uh, about his matters. Course, yeah. So he doesn't want him to be photoshopped, he wants to be as God intended. So he's got one in his left eye socket beneath the lower lip, another one above his left eyebrow. Mm-hmm. Was, you know, his death mask, famously yes. kept, was that um, of his choice or people trying to sort of wreak their revenge kept his head? We will come to his head right. later on okay. in the That's podcast. That's the end, I'd imagine. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and so, as we said, his external appearances he doesn't care much about. So when he first came to Parliament, apparently he looked like something of a country bumpkin. Mm. So he had poorly tailored, low-quality suit, shabby linen and a hat without a hat band. Oh, my Lord. Imagine. In terms of his background, we know very little about the first 40 years of his life. I know something. Go on. I went to school in Ely, where he used to live, and his house mm. is open to the public. It's just like a, a sort of Tudor-era, Stuart-era Stuart rather, um, house. <laughs> well, it may have been an older house. <laughs> it before. might well have been. It seemed old to me mm. about the early 90s. Yeah. Mm. A lot of wood. Loads. Loads mm. of wood. He is sort of related to a very famous man called Thomas Cromwell, who, if we recall, was mm. chief minister uh, under Henry VIII before he had an inevitable downfall. And a Welshman, Morgan Williams, came to England and married the elder sister of Thomas Cromwell. And Thomas the son changed his name to Cromwell in honour of the patronage that they received from Thomas Cromwell. And that is how we get Oliver Cromwell. Um, however, his family is not very rich or powerful. They get their money from the dissolution, which you'd expect, from Thomas Cromwell. Um, and Oliver is the only surviving son of a man called Sir Henry Cromwell. He became head of the family at about 18 years old, so he'd got six sisters uh, and a mother. They're struggling to retain a sort of middling gentry status. Mm. So they're not powerful lords or barons or anything like that, but they're not peasants either. They're, yeah. you know, middling sort. 1628, he serves as an MP, and that was the session which led ultimately to the personal monarchy of Charles I, where the Speaker was held down 
in his place. Well, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then the personal monarchy, where there's no parliament for 11 years, Cromwell falls on rather hard times. Um, he moves to St Ives and is forced to live as a yeoman farmer. So not like a right. sort of a feudal lord over a farm. Literally, he is farming with his own, his own hands. hands. It's, uh, he's fallen on bad times. And he suffers a, something of a nervous breakdown or sort of from depression yeah. in this period as well, for which he sees a doctor. Really? Yeah. Leeches? <laughs> well, I, we can only imagine. <laughs> uh, but then he, he has something of a recovery. He converts fully and um, authoritatively to Puritanism. And then his uncle dies, which is great news because he um, inherits from his uncle various properties in Ely. Oh, heard. right. Okay. Yep. So that's how he returns yep. to the gentry status. And then in 1640, Charles I was forced to recall Parliament because he was at war, wanted to go to war with Scotland. And Cromwell was returned as MP for Cambridge. And he'd got eight relations in the long Parliament. So he'd got a bit more sort of links to power and people and authority. Mm. So he's got a little bit more position than he had before. And he's part of this sort of godly grouping of MPs calling for a check on executive power and liberty of conscience and religion. Mm. So he's one of those who's opposing Charles, but he's not one of the big, big people at this stage. Um, In the Long Parliament, just to quickly recap, Charles was trying to get money to go to war with Scotland. Yeah. Um, Parliament had been not called for 11 years, so they had lots of grievances that they wanted to go through. And there was a toing and froing, and then we had in 1641 the Irish Rebellion, and there was fears that Charles was going to try and use the troops to, that he'd have in Ireland to solve problems in England. A lot of mistrust about who has control of the armed forces, what's going to happen, etc. And then in 1642, Charles attempted to enter Parliament with troops and arrest five MPs. Was he one of them? Cromwell was not one of the five. Okay. Um, but the failure of this meant Charles left London, and then we had the Civil War. Yeah. And this is where Cromwell suddenly enters the fray. He finds himself. He does indeed. First action, very early on in Cambridgeshire, before there'd been an actual battle, um, Cromwell took decisive action, got some troops together, blocked the road going towards uh, King's College in Cambridge, where there was uh, sort of a lot of plates and royal treasure, um, and stopped the royalists getting to it, which stopped them getting about sort of £20,000 worth. Goods. So he was general. He was already like a general in charge of troops. Or he just well, he's, he's got some together because he'd got links, but he mm. wasn't really. He had no military experience whatsoever. Well, okay. However, thanks to his links and this sort of action, he becomes a captain initially. And then when Lord Grey, who's sort of head of his sort of division, yeah. goes off to fight somewhere else and never comes back, so Cromwell gets promoted to become a colonel. Right. So he's gone he's up the ranks. Way. Um, and he proves a natural military leader, very disciplined, inspires his troops, and particularly in terms of leading a cavalry, he's very, very effective. This and he's got a plan. When he sort of has got things in East Anglia, he sort of knows how he's going to be doing it. So he's got more strategy than some of the he's others. long-term had. thinker as well. Mm. It, there's an element of Napoleon here, the way he mm. rises up the ranks like that. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, that's him up to sort of 1643, but then the Royalist forces under the Earl of Newcastle are starting to march south and impose a bit of a threat, so they decide they need to rejig things a bit. So we now have something called the Eastern Association, which is I, the whole of East Anglia and southern mm. parts of the country, which is under the Earl of Manchester. So Manchester is the commander, and Cromwell is the head of the cavalry and one of the, sort of the chief colonels in that regiment. And 1644, the Battle of Marston Moor, one of the first big victories for the Roundheads, the parliamentarians. Chaotic fighting, troops and leaders got scattered, but Fairfax and Cromwell were able to link up Push to victory. 
So he was he was a military man by the end of it. He'd made very much so. He became a military man. But from a, I can't imagine him actually in the fray. If he had no experience, was he just leading the troops tactically, or Both. he was actually there? Actually there. Well, he looked quick, didn't he? However, there's a lot of internal conflict among the Roundheads. At the Second Battle of Newbury, after Mastermore, they fail to build on their success. The Royalists win a tactical victory, and there's divisions between the sort of Presbyterian earls like Manchester and Essex, and then the army men, who are more Puritans like Cromwell mm. and Fairfax. Cromwell accuses Manchester of not pushing hard enough, and he's suspicious that um, Manchester and his Scottish Presbyterian troops essentially just want peace with Charles. Manchester accuses Cromwell of recruiting men of low birth, and he fears the consequences if they lose to Charles. And that's when he said, if we beat him 99 times, he's still king. If he wins once, we'll be for the chop. Cromwell's allies help push through in Parliament a measure called the self-denying ordinance. And this means that if you have a seat in Parliament or in the Lords, you can't have a military commission. Mm. I.e., out go Manchester and Essex. So, what is formed instead is the new model army. Um, it combines three main forces into one national professional army. Fairfax is in charge because he isn't an MP and he isn't a lord, so mm. he's uh, legitimate. Daily pay, soldiers have to be disciplined, dedicated to Protestant ideals. Technically, Cromwell, of course, is an MP and thus should be excluded, but he's so important, particularly in the cavalry, that Fairfax basically says you've got to come back and Parliament says you've just got to go. So Cromwell remains the prominent leader within the army. So him and Henry Ireton, who's his son-in-law, one of the two of the only exceptions to the rule of the self-denying ordinance. Unsurprising, Cromwell's an exception to the rule. Indeed. Um, So the New Model Army proves highly successful. In 1645, the Battle of Naseby, the major battle of the Civil War, Fairfax's infantry, Cromwell's cavalry charges make the difference. Charles loses his entire artillery train, his treasure, his private correspondence, loads of men, and that's basically game over. Mm. So then Bristol is captured, Charles escapes from the besieged Oxford and then surrenders to the Scots. And the First English Civil War ended there. Yeah, but as we mentioned. But as we mentioned last time, of course, they then had the difficulty of what they're going to do with Charles. Problem being, Parliament not really ready to abolish the monarchy, but somehow they've got to come up with an acceptable settlement. So it's now up to Fairfax and Cromwell to negotiate between Parliament and Charles. However, it's quite awkward for them because Charles, as we recall, is rather wily, Mm. very willing to be quite duplicitous in his dealings, and they're facing a lot of pressure from their own troops because New Model Army very much opposed to Charles and the idea of the monarchy. They're not happy about it. They've been fighting him for all these years Mm. and they've been fighting for ideals which he doesn't represent. Yeah. They're towing a bit of an awkward uh, balancing act. What's more, we have uh, the Levellers who were... Political, not the band, but they were named after them. Yeah. Uh, political uh, radicals who are petitioning, amongst other things, for civil liberties and for religious toleration. And their leader, John Lilburn, was very effective at appealing to the rank and file of the New Model Army. And they had a series of debates at Putney, which Cromwell actually chaired, where they called for the monarchy to be removed and for full male suffrage. That's really ahead of its time. Hugely ahead of its time. Um, but... That was, wasn't going to happen, but the fact that they're already got a lot of tension around having a monarchy, even at this stage, mm. shows it's very difficult for Cromwell and Fairfax. However, things made a bit easier because Charles, following rumours of a leveller assassination plot, in 1648 he escapes from Hampton Court, where he's imprisoned, goes to the Isle of Wight, makes a deal with Scotland, and we have the Second English Civil War. Yeah. So we have uprisings in Essex, Kent, South Wales, and the Scots invade. However... 
doesn't go very well for the Royalists. Fairfax crushes uh, the rebels in Kent, besieges Colchester successfully, Cromwell hard-win fight in Wales, then storms all the way up to Preston, where he defeats the Scottish army. Charles and co have been defeated again, and this time Cromwell and co have got control of Charles. And they're not going to be any messing about anymore at Charles' trial, although Parliament had softened to Charles because they just wanted restoration of order, which mm. they thought they needed the monarch for. The new model army completely hardened against him, and Cromwell agrees. So, Parliament was purged of all of those who opposed the execution of Charles. But the only people that were allowed into Parliament were those that effectively would be voting how Purged by Cromwell? Well, Crom- we'll come to that later. Cromwell okay. wasn't there. It was Colonel Pride and his men, the new model army, literally stood on the steps of Westminster and just wouldn't let in anybody that... So purged like that, they, they weren't yeah. killed or no longer... No, they weren't. like... You can't come in. Wow. Mm. Wow. So we're left with a rump parliament, which is a lot smaller uh, than those that were originally elected. Oh, that, is the, that was the rump parliament? That was parliament. the rump parliament. Okay, yeah. So parliament uh, is purged... Charles is condemned to death, and in 1649, Charles is executed. The monarchy is abolished, as is the House of Lords, and declared is the existence of the Commonwealth and Free State of England. That in itself is pretty far ahead of its time. You think the French Revolution was over 100 years later. Is there anywhere else that has been a republic before this? Not that I'm aware no, of. Everyone else is a monarchy. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're, well, we go back to ancient Greece and Rome, obviously. Oh, yeah. The Rump Parliament is made up of about sort of 200, 210 MPs. And this is the tricky thing first. Cromwell is the dominant personality, but he's not technically predominant. He's mm. not protector at this stage. Mm. He's mainly occupied with military affairs these early years. There are a lot of domestic issues, about a £700,000 annual deficit, not including the arrears in pay for the army. Mm vagrancy, disabled veterans, orphan children and religious disputes. He said a lot of radical sects appear at this stage. However, the big issues are military. Scotland and Ireland both proclaim the son of Charles I as Charles II, as king, i.e. So Cromwell's priority is to prevent royalist invasion. So he's got to bring Scotland and Ireland to heel. He's not a popular chap in Ireland, is he? Well, first things that the royal, uh, that the rump parliament say is... Better sort out Ireland. Why did they go for Ireland? I'd have chosen Scotland. Um, I think they... Well, Ireland had been an issue prior to the English Civil War because there had been the Irish Rebellion in 1641, so we already had the situation in Ireland that they hadn't been able to deal with right, yeah. because of the Civil War. And they'd already fought the Scots. Mm. Yeah, OK. So, a bit of background to Ireland. 1641, as you said, we had the Irish Rebellion. It was a Catholic plot where there was going to be a bloodless seizure of power. But unfortunately, the plot was betrayed, and instead there was anarchic violence. Lots of killings on both sides. I think in particular, thousands of Protestants killed, and there were horror stories in England about babies' heads being ripped off. Always the babies again. Always the babies, and even threats of invasion. So there's a lot of um, anger and almost fear Mm. about the Irish Catholics in England. In 1642, uh, Irish Catholics form a Catholic confederation at Kilkenny, so they control about two-thirds of Ireland, and they're basically preparing for an English invasion. But that's delayed because of the Civil War. Right, yeah. During the Civil War, the Confederates signed a peace with Charles. Yeah. So they, in fact, become royalists opposed to the Roundheads. So even more reason to have a... So for Cromwell, the motivation, he needs to prevent Charles II landing in Ireland and using that as a springboard yeah, to invade into yeah. Wales and England. Uh, they need land from Ireland to pay back some of their debts and arrears. And 
there's a sense of wanting revenge for the rebellion in 1641. It's all heading that way, isn't it? All heading that way. So, 1649 to 50, Cromwell goes over there, occupies 25 fortified towns and castles from Louth to Limerick, overwhelming success, basically it's conquest mm. of Ireland, but there are notorious massacres at Drogheda and Wexford, which we'll come back to later. Yeah, yeah. After he deals with Ireland, he comes straight back and deals with Scotland. Because in uh, 1650, Charles II accepts the Scottish Covenant in exchange for uh, the Scottish Crown and military aid for being restored in England. So he's now got Charles in Scotland trying mm. to invade England to take his throne back. Cromwell was actually a bit uneasy about invading Scotland because they had been allies and they were fellow Protestants. Yeah. And he actually beseeches them to, you know, turn Seems around. Nice. He says, I beseech you in the bowels of Christ... Think it possible you may be mistaken. <laughs> They've got such away with words, haven't they? Uh, but they are not beseeched successfully. So in 1650, the Battle of Dunbar, facing superior numbers, Cromwell in, exerts an overwhelming victory over the Scots with a surprise attack. Mm. But they're not done yet. And exactly one year later, one year to the day, the Battle of Worcester in 1651. Worcester? Cro- Worcester. That's very Scots south. march 150 miles into England. That's really far south. Mm. They do very well, think they're going to take them by surprise, but Cromwell, new model army, they're too experienced and savvy by this stage. Cromwell's prepared, another overwhelming victory, Scots are routed, no more fight left in them, and Charles II goes off into exile. So, Ireland has been dealt with, Scotland has been dealt with. Who next? Parliament. Next Parliament, because there are problems in England. They've had some limited reforms, um, but they're not able to achieve very much, mainly religious and moral acts. Um, there's a Dutch naval war in 1651-52, to 52, which ultimately England are successful in, but again, it's another cost, as they have to be paying for the navy, paying for the campaigns in Ireland and Scotland, as well as the arrears in the English Civil War. Mm. Lots and lots of costs. Is that um, uh, Dutch... Um the Dutch invaded up the River Thames. They actually got quite far. Was it up the River Medway or somewhere? Possibly, yeah. They didn't manage to land troops. But they, but they got quite, to, yeah. yeah, they got quite far, mm. yeah. The Levellers, of course, are still there. Uh, John Lilburn argued that the Commonwealth was no better than a monarchy and published a pamphlet to that extent. Oh, he's in trouble. Well, he was imprisoned. His wife, Elizabeth, organised a petition for his release and 10,000 people signed a petition for women having equal rights to men. Or at least rights. So, although he's busy turning into a tyrant, this is actually quite is encouraging some really progressive thinking. Yeah, very radical thinking, yeah. although level of movement sort of falls away at this stage. Mm. A bit too radical for the time, perhaps. We also have diggers. Right, that's quite advanced. Effectively a communist experiment. <laughs> really? Yeah, at uh, St George's Hill in Surrey, then later moved to Cobham Heath, where they're sort of ploughing and planting in their own little community where they're trying to build a second Jerusalem. There's no property, no ownership. They're just trying to have this perfect Is that as a result of the anarchy that was experienced, so that people started to get more insular, or was it... Partly, but also there's a sense that 1649 inspires this sort of millennial sense of a new beginning, a brave new world, and the sense that they're going to build this new Jerusalem, this new perfect society. So lots of these radical ideas start to take forth, and people try to make them happen. Yeah. But for Cromwell and people in position of authority, these are all people that are going against the grain and causing problems and yeah, he just pamphleting against him. Mm. It's very difficult. Because the government is very unpopular, heavy taxation, lack of reform, 
And what's more, the army aren't very happy with it either because they wanted to see great reform and they just see the rump parliament. These people aren't really doing anything. It's all talk. It's no action. And Cromwell's role in the rump parliament is still just most dominant, but not... Most dominant, but for the most period, he's been in Ireland and uh, yeah. Scotland. He's not actually okay. been there all of the yeah. time, but he's the one that everyone writes to and everyone sends messages to saying, well, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. Right. And the army say, we're not happy about this. Mm. So Cromwell, 20th of April, 1653, comes into Parliament with musketeers and uh, dissolves the Parliament in a fit of rage. He's Charles. It is a little similar. So he says, The Lord has done with you and has chosen other instruments for the carrying on of his work that are more worthy. Some of you are whoremasters, some drunkards, and some corrupt and unjust men and scandalous the profession of the gospel. You are no parliament. I say you are no parliament. I'll put an end to your sitting. So, I'm shocked. Well, yeah, he's decided that's it's not working. You guys are out. So he's not going to reform it, he just kicked them out. What they do instead is they have a thing called the nominated parliament. Right. And uh, Cromwell likes this idea. The churches nominate 140 godly members, so men of religion, of good conscience and character. The kind of man you want to be leading the country. Do they, though? Well, they, they do, but they fail to entice the former leading figures, and they don't have quite the men of substance mm. they'd wanted. And as a result... Um, People don't tend to attend in great numbers. Cromwell rarely attends. Is nicknamed after a Puritan MP called Praise God Barebones. That became known as the Barebone Parliament. Sorry, can we go back over his name? Yes. Praise God was his first name. Praise God Barebones. And Barebones is his surname. Puritans had these rather odd names where they'd have these sort of very just full, almost just sentences, which tended to be quite very religious and quite damning. And indeed, praise God's original name was Unless Jesus Christ had died for thee, thou hast been damned. Barebone. So, it's not thought of very well, and the moderates in the Parliament decide this is all ridiculous, this isn't working. So that one day they come into Parliament en masse, and thus are a majority, because no one else bothers, and they resign the Parliament. They do. They... they resign the Parliament, and they trot off to Cromwell's office and say, Oliver, no more of this. Why don't you be protector? So they've just admitted they're a bit rubbish, so yeah. that, wow. And so, on the 16th of December, 1653, Cromwell is made Lord Protector for life. Just ruling on his own? Well, no. There is a constitution in place here. Right. The Protector, uh, Cromwell, has executive power. He oversees the democratic process and the military. Parliament is made up of 460 members. Um, it meets in triennially, so mm. every, every year, and of five months duration, each parliament. And that's got the power to make and change the law. And then there's a council of sort of 13 to 20 members who serve for life and they advise the protector on civil and military matters. So it is pretty much like the Lords, that last bit. A little bit, yes. But not exactly. No. Now, they've still got lots of challenges. Parliament is very divided. Over 70 people refuse an oath of recognition of Cromwell's status as Lord Protector. And lots of awkward bills get put forward, all these grievances, and Cromwell thinks, ugh, <laughs> never mind this, dissolves Parliament. Really? And we've still got all these religious sects proliferating, including a new and exciting group called the Quakers. Oh, yeah. Set up by George Fox. 1655, uh, there's a thing called the Penruddock Rebellion, um, where there was an attempt to seize um, a, t- a town and various officials. Doesn't work out, but in response to that, Cromwell tries to chop England up into various administrative areas which are led by sort of military figures. Right. But that proves 
heavily unpopular. Yeah, military And is rule. forced to get rid of quite quickly. Parliament have a bit of a concern that as Lord Protector, it's an unprecedented position, and he technically has more power than the monarch used to. He's got more power than Charles I had. Because yeah. he can just get rid of Parliament, he can do what he wants, he just have to... He's sort of almost... In charge of a more powerful army. Yeah. And he is still the man that the army go to. Yeah. Cromwell himself is also a bit concerned that there's a power vacuum. Because he thinks there are things which he can't do, and that some of the radicals in Parliament are doing damaging things, and there's no check on them. So, Parliament, before the second one that they're going to call, Parliament offer him a chance to be King Oliver. Because they say, we know what a king is, we know what a king does, we know what you can do and what you can't do, wouldn't it be better if we just did that, and everyone knows where we stand. Cromwell is tempted, Mm. but the army leaders are totally against it, so he rejects it. But what he does do is bring back the House of Lords. To fill this power vacuum. So we've almost got pretty much the same settlement as before. Mm. Except we've got a protector instead of a monarch. However, he goes into something of decline. Oh dear. He despairs at the continual infighting and opposition in Parliament. His favourite daughter, Elizabeth, dies. And he is suffering from a sort of a mix of malaria and also a bit of a kidney infection. Mm. And also probably just the weight of all the stuff that he's been doing for the last sort of, 20 years. Yeah. 3rd of September, 1658, on the anniversary of the battles of Dunbar and Worcester... Oliver Cromwell dies, aged about 59. That's it? Just He just pops here? Well, he dies. Of course, there is an epilogue, which is one of the problems with the fact that we're doing this as Oliver Cromwell, because he nominates his son Richard to be his successor. So it was going to be a, like a hereditary thing? An hereditary Lord Protector. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but his successor, Richard, lacks a power base and a killer instinct, so after just eight months he has to dissolve Parliament and resign. Lord so he was, he was Lord Protector, his son he was. Richard. So technically we could next week do Richard Cromwell, but I've we won't. never even heard of Richard Cromwell. And well, it doesn't go very well, because say he resigns in 1659, a complete power vacuum. The army don't have any strong leader who can just come in and take control. There isn't anyone there. So a man, General Monk, takes control and says, right, we're going to have a king again. So Charles II is invited to come back to England to be king, and in 1660 he's restored. Cromwell was buried initially in great pomp at Westminster Abbey, but then in 1661 he's exhumed, beheaded, and then, as are some other royalist leaders, and his head placed on a spike quite a long time. This is after Charles' After the Restoration. But, you said about the head, there's a lot of debate about whether they'd actually got the right head, and whether it was really Cromwell's head in his body. It's got warts on it, hasn't it? Well, not by that stage, it didn't. Right. It was apparently already in quite a bad state of decay. Mm. They were a bit too late to preserve it. So they don't actually know whether it was Cromwell's head or if it was just a fake that they put up. So somebody's head was put on a spike. Yeah. But it might not have been Cromwell's. Mm. Nasty. Whatever the case, Cromwell is dead. Yeah, he's definitely dead. And we must review him. Let's do him. Battleiness! So, battleiness... As we said, he goes into this with no military experience whatsoever. Yeah. Even his family, he's got nothing to draw on whatsoever. So he picks up knowledge as he goes along and proves something of a natural genius for it. Really? I mean, totally. He's an excellent leader of his troops. Apparently in battle he's reported to laugh so excessively as if he had been drunk. (laughs) 
So, you know, in full Stunning. combat, you can imagine him on his horse going, ha, 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 ha. That is really terrifying. And a uh, contemporary Richard Baxter... Uh, said that he was naturally of such vivacity, hilarity and alacrity as another man is when he hath drunk a cup of wine too much. What, Cromwell, the boring Puritan? Indeed, so he's always quite a big, vivacious character, and thus one that can inspire his troops. That's that's totally opposite to the Cromwell so completely against what you'd imagine. Is this only in battle or all the time? Well, certainly in battle and with his troops, but we'll find he's not quite as puritanical in all his ways okay. as you might imagine. Soldiers, he was said to have loved his men as children, um, always ensured that he provided for them in terms of food, supplies, uniform, ammunition, so he was very good at the logistics and the mm. organisation. He enjoyed the soldierly jests, encouraged the singing of psalms. Encouraged the singing of psalms? Oh, they were famed yeah. for it as his bonding exercise, that before battle, even in battle, they'd be singing their psalms. Really? Because they're a very godly army, the new model army, they're all very religious. Right, Okay. And his tactics, he does leave from the front, he's there because he's a cavalryman, so, you know, mm. he is often, he will be charging, he leads assaults. Um, he's able to have a sort of cold head, seize opportunities whenever they come along, he's able to make decisions in the heat of battle mm. which are rational. Disciplined troops so that they hold together when he does a cavalry charge. Because one of the problems for Prince Rupert, for the Royalists, who's a very effective cavalry leader, except that when he beat off the enemy with a charge, they just run off the battlefield after them. After charge the after them, army, yeah. And oh, thus yeah. would be removed from the battlefield, whereas Cromwell was able to get them to stay put and stay together mm. so that they don't disappear. They then move around and take them the next bit of the army. Is that part of their discipline and their... Exactly. Yeah, OK. So very good leadership. In the English Civil War, as we said, lots of uh, successive to Cromwell. Cambridgeshire, at the start of the war, we took that decisive action to take control of the treasure before there'd been a battle. Mm. Marston Moore, um, furious fighting. He was injured in the neck during the battle, went off to get some treatment on it. His flank was heavily attacked but held out. And then, with Fairfax's infantry, the two of them linked up together and helped to rout the Royalists. So he went back into the battle? Mm. And uh, it's such a hard battle, though. Fairfax loses his brother, Cromwell loses a son-in-law, and Prince Rupert loses, I'm afraid, his faithful dog called Boy. Oh, these poor dogs all throughout history are getting their heads caved in. It is. (laughs) Then at Naseby, the decisive battle of the period, Cromwell, Ireton and Fairfax faced off against the Royalists, who were led by Sir Marmaduke Langdale, Mm, Prince Rupert of the Rhine and Lord Astley. Ireton's cavalry was routed by Rupert. Uh, but then Fairfax Infantry held Rupert off when they charged to get the Roundhead's baggage train. Then Cromwell's cavalry charge breaks uh, Langdale, and then with Fairfax, break the infantry, overwhelming Gosh. victory. Mm. Civil War kind of won. Except we then had the second yeah. Civil War, at which point Cromwell goes off to Wales, gets Chepstow Castle back, forces the surrender of Tenby, destroys Carmarthen, yeah. And of course, one of his great crimes, of course, is yeah, a lot of castles, castles gets destroyed. Yeah. Took eight weeks to besiege Pembroke, because he didn't have all the siege engineers and things that he needed. Then rushes straight up to Preston and defeats the Scots in battle. Yeah, I mean, it's good. It's very good. Then he goes to Ireland. Lands with about 35 ships, item 77. Admiral Blake, another roundhead, sort of blockaded Prince Rupert's royalist fleet in Kinsale, so they weren't able to interrupt the supply route. And the campaign is incredibly successful. As you said, we've got towns like Louth, Dublin, Wicklow, Cork, Kilkenny, Tipperary, Limerick, all in just 40 weeks. So not even mm-hmm. a full year that he's there. 
Drogheda, the siege there, uh, the commander Aston claimed that he who could take Drogheda could take hell, because he thought it was impenetrable. Hadn't reckoned upon the fact that uh, Cromwell had got all the latest siege technology that they hadn't seen in Ireland, but it was quite hard fighting. A lot of failed attacks, but it was Cromwell that personally led the charge through the breached walls that actually got into the town. So he's a lucky man, too. Hmm. Wow. Very lucky man. Only defeat, or sort of semi-defeat, they had in Ireland was at Clonmel, and where the campaign was coming to an end, the army was weakened by disease, they were quite keen just to get on with it. And Hugh O'Neill, not the Hugh O'Neill that we remember from Elizabeth and James, the five oh, yeah. Earls, same name, he led successful sallies each night, so mm-hmm. went out, killed a few of Cromwell's men, or a few hundred at a time. And then when the walls were breached, and he knew that the next day Cromwell would lead his assault, all through the night they prepared for the invasion. So they drew up this kind of false ditch, a sort of false trench, this false entrance, mm. and then just load it with a cannon that would be facing it, and then men were ready all along. So when the troops went in, they were just trapped and massacred about 2,000 really? New Model Army but soldiers still, killed. still lost? Uh, Cromwell's like, had to then retreat. Oh, right. So they weren't able to capture it. And then at midnight, they parleyed the peace terms, while Cromwell was debating... Um, with the mayor, Hugh O'Neill and the Irish army snuck out the back <laughs> and uh, lived to fight another day. Clever, clever. But ultimately, of course, yeah, he takes yeah, the town. So it's a conquest, really. 1650, Charles II repudiated his alliance with the Irish Confederates. Limerick and Galway fell in 1651 and 52, so that was the end of organised resistance. So in just three years, Ireland, as in the Republic of Ireland, Northern Ireland as we now know it, the whole island has been conquered. Which has been a, a thorn in the side of many kings for a long time trying to do that. So really, that is centuries worth of failure yeah. from our medieval military yeah. monarchs. Cromwell's done it in about three years. Right back to John. John, yes, tugging yeah. at the beards. Yeah. In Scotland, we had the Battle of Dunbar, um, where he was facing superior numbers, but uh, the Scottish commander, Leslie, was tempted into an early attack suffered uh, huge casualties, about 3,000 Scottish dead and 10,000 captured, which is more than Cromwell's army had in mm. total. Right. And they suffered minimal casualties. Then the Battle of Worcester, a hard and tactical battle, but again, Cromwell's men, their experience and their numbers, too much for the Scots and other royalist routes. Mm. So we've got Ireland, we've got Scotland, we have the Dutch naval war. He's not really involved in that, but again... Yes, um, repelled. Naval supremacy means that's good for the mm. trade, etc., so his record, he's a conqueror in England, in Ireland, in Scotland, which no king before has really mar- managed. He achieved all of his aims in his three main campaigns, a complete, you know, green all across the board. Yeah. New model army, discipline, well-trained, sound logistics. The ta- that sort of approach to the army is adopted by Charles II, and in effect it's the basis for modern British armies. You could argue that Cromwell is in a way the father yeah. of the modern British army. And Prince Rupert, the great cavalryman of the Royalists, nicknamed Cromwell and the New Model Army the Ironsides for the way they were able to side through troops with their cavalry. Mm. So it's, it's jolly good. I mean, I don't know what we've got that's negative. What we've got against him, there's an extent to which there's not enough due credit given to the other leaders. Because certainly early in the Civil War, Cromwell is not the only man that's fighting Charles, even though that's how it tends to be portrayed, and as we probably have portrayed it. So particularly Fairfax... It's very yeah. important. It's Fairfax that sets up the new model army. He's the one that leads it during the Civil War, and his leadership is arguably more significant at Marston Moor and probably equal at Naseby. Right. But what um, what is his fate? 
Well, he said he doesn't really like uh, the whole execution of Charles, so he kind of steps oh, okay. back after that. Right. Yeah. Um, also, there is one failure, which is a thing called the Western Design. This was after they got peace with the Dutch. Cromwell wanted war with Spain, which is still seen as England's traditional enemy. Plan was to seize a large island in the West Indies and disrupt Spanish trade while getting lots and lots of treasure. Good plan. Unfortunately, it was poorly managed. They only managed to seize Jamaica, which was more expensive to maintain than it actually provided rewards, and lost about half the force. But then part of the British Empire. But indeed, and Cromwell wasn't actually present or involved firsthand, so it's not like he particularly no, failed, no. and there's no real lasting impact. No. I And is that, that what we've got? For That's action? all I've got against him. Oh, it's I suppose be the massive. only other thing you could say is that he doesn't invade France or anything like that. Yeah, you've got to love kicking. But he does stuck. But he is a farmer that ends up conquering England, Scotland, and Ireland. Which no one, even the great with the rowers, Edgar the Peaceable, Edgar the Peaceable, here, <laughs> who we get in the neck all the time for not giving it to him. He uh, didn't. The Scottish kings just uh, acknowledged his uh, overlordship. So what even that he was doesn't actually military. conquer them. Yeah. yeah. So by force. Mm. It's got England, Scotland, and Ireland. Yeah. And then, as a little project that we only just mentioned, yes. then he takes Jamaica. But, yeah, and a bit of Wales as well, he yeah, sort of Wales, reasserts. Yeah. yeah. It's got to be massive. Can I tell you why I'm unhappy about it? Why are you unhappy about it? If you go and visit <clears> any <throat> castle, especially in Wales, some of these huge ones now, the side of the keep, or actually in, in Warwickshire and Kenilworth, mm. beautiful castle, <clears> just sliced in half. He does massacre the castles. I don't know how you could do any better than Cromwell. No, I mean, it's... It's a it's ten. About as good as it, military-wise, about as good as it can get. So you think if you pit all these people against each other... 9.5 for not giving the French a go. Okay. <laughs> so And the castles, that's where your half point comes from. So okay, so that's five. nine and a half from you. I'm going to give him a ten. So that's 19.5, just Always second best. Always room for improvement. <laughs> Less blowing up of castles. Scandal. Well, two biggies here. Mm-hmm. Firstly, the execution of Charles I. Yeah. Pride's purge, as we touched on earlier, was on Colonel Pride and troops to prevent the Presbyterian opponents from entering Parliament. So it's a real stitch-up job. They mm. decide we want to get rid of Charles. Not all the MPs are going to vote for it, so we just won't let them in. Yeah, that's right. They can't vote for it. Yeah. Cromwell was in the north at the time. He wasn't there, but he supports the event, and it's one of those things he's widely suspected of knowing yeah. it was going to happen. We then effectively have something of a show trial. Yeah, certainly. It's not really lawful. The court is especially set up for it. The commissioner warns there's no legal way to try a monarch. Mm. To which Conroy responds that, I tell you, we will cut off his head with the crown upon it. So he, he, he's pretty sure of the outcome. Yes, isn't he? It's, it's pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty decided already. Um, for the execution warrant, many of the signatures were only obtained after the event to hard lobbying by Cromwell, because mm. they wanted as many people as possible to make it uh, legitimate. Fairfax refused to attend the trial or to sign it, and he pretty much just retires after that point. Oh, that's sad. I wonder what became of him. In process. He, yeah. well, he just retires, he goes just off. goes home. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Charles, of course, conducted himself with great dignity at yep, the trial, and the especially at the execution. His last words... On the scaffold, where I go from a corruptible to an incorruptible crown, where no disturbance can be. Diarist at the time, Ralph Jocelyn, um, noted, I was much troubled with the black providence of putting the king to death. My tears were not restrained at the passages about his death. The Lord in mercy lay it not as sin to the charge of the kingdom. 
So in other words, there's real shock for the people when it actually happens, this sense of, you know, can we even do this? This is a crime against God. It's unnatural. It's, it's so shocking for people. I think, again, this has got to be well up there. Killing the king? Because we've had killing the king before, but it's always behind closed doors and it's something like, oh, he, he starved. Or, can we he, prove it? The prince in the tower, all that sort of All jazz. that sort of thing. But this is out in the open, trying and executing. It's massive. In contrast, Jocelyn, on Cromwell's death, noted, Cromwell died, people not much minding it. <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. That's like an entry into Agent Mole. Um, <laughs> but that's not it for scandal. Oh, really? Okay. Because we've also got Ireland. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is a biggie. Yeah. First of all, Drogheda mm. is a successful siege in a battle sense, in mm. case that they win, but there is a massacre when the troops get in. They just run riot in this sort of bloodlust, pretty mm. much. About two or three thousand people are murdered. Priests and friars either clubbed to death or locked in and burnt in churches. Uh, the commander, Aston, was beaten to death with his own wooden leg. And uh, one street in Drogheda is uh, still called Scarlet Street due to being awash with blood at the time. This is bad, right? Definitely. Mm. Um, choose my words carefully. Shall we hear what Cromwell's got to say yeah, first? Yeah. I believe we put to the sword the whole number of the defendants. I do not think 30 of the whole number escape with their lives. I am persuaded that this is a righteous judgment of God upon these barbarous wretches who have imbrued their hands in so much innocent blood. Probably not fair. <laughs> Context. <laughs> um, uh, and there's nothing comparable in the English Civil War. So this is very No, but there is comparable, like, um, in the medieval period, which you'd hope you'd have um, grown out of, I suppose... Would I mean there's possibly similar scenes when they uh, went to Jamaica or there's as barbarous things that happen in the future mm. with, for example, the slave trade, which is a result of empire as well. Um, but it is specifically bad because of the future repercussions. We've got more for Ireland. Oh, Grums. Wexford. There's also a massacre. The town was in the midst of negotiating a surrender with Cromwell, but the troops stormed in, sacked the town. Maybe about 2,000 people killed and maybe about another 1,500 civilians killed mm. in Wexford. The destruction of the town was so severe that it couldn't be used as a port or as winter lodgings for right. Cromwell's troops. They just, it was just completely ruined. Mm. Cromwell doesn't order this, but he also doesn't really do anything particularly to stop How it. How does this sit with his Puritan beliefs, then? Well, They're Catholic we'll see later, 1652, where we have the Catholics who can't own any property in Connacht... Anyone implicated in 1641 is liable to execution as our priors and priests. Uh, priests. It's, it is, it's anti-Catholic, is the real thing. Mm. This is hatred of Catholicism. The impact of all of this, Catholic land ownership drops from 60% to 8% in Ireland. Uh, the guerrilla warfare, after Cromwell leaves, but again still sort of under his rule, food stocks are destroyed, leading to famine, which is worsened by plague. About 50,000 Irish people are sent to the West Indies uh, as colonies as slaves. Really? Yeah. Population, 1649 to 53, is about 20% mortality in Ireland compared to 3% in England during the Civil War. 1651 to 54, about 40,000 going to exile. Overall, 1641 from the Irish Rebellion to sort of 10-ish years later, about 618,000 people, roughly, die in Ireland, which is about 40% of the population. Wow. Which, in context, is... A higher proportion than died in the Irish potato famine, and it's a higher proportion than Russia lose in the Second World War. Yeah, because what was that? Twenty million or something. That's 
is shocking. The legacy of this, which is you alluding to, yeah. is one of the important things. It's sometimes compared to Nazi war atrocities, although that is something of an exaggeration. He's, but he's still a reviled figure to the extent that that language is used. Prominent very much in folklore and indeed on education in the Irish mm. system. He's still taught as his monster. And, of course, on nationalism. To the extent 1997, allegedly Bertie Ahern, the then mm. Irish uh, Premier, when he came into the Foreign Office to see Robin Cook when Labour come in, saw a portrait of Cromwell and apparently walked out and said that he wouldn't come back until Cook had removed the portrait of that murdering bastard. I mean, yeah, fair enough. Makes a little point. That's good. Even Churchill said he cut new gulfs between the nations and the creeds. Hell or Connacht were the terms he thrust upon the native inhabitants, and they, for their part, across 300 years, have used their keenest expression of hatred, the curse of Cromwell upon you. Upon all of us there still lies the curse of Cromwell. Yeah. I mean, that is really... I mean, I was saying that there's other bad things that go on the slave trade, but he even used the slave trade... He even uses the slave I mean, trade. It's a man Tom Riley tried to sort of defend Cromwell's uh, time in Ireland, said that a lot of this is exaggerated folklore. We've got a lot of babies' heads being ripped off and mm. murdered mothers and all that sort of thing we've had before with the Irish rebellion. The worst impact was really the famine rather than the actual massacres, and that's after Cromwell's left... Um, and he allegedly does order troops to spare civilians and was, for the most part, unquote, an honourable enemy. Doesn't sound it. No. You could also argue Drogheda refused to surrender. Yeah. And we've seen Henry V when, you know, if the town surrendered, he treated them nicely. If they didn't, he didn't. Yeah, I don't imagine he'd treat them nicely either. But, and, but going back medieval time, you've got... Uh, Riz the Lionheart slaughtering 7,000 systematically, which is more Nazi-esque. Mm. But still this, whether he caused, he did cause the famine, whether he removed the bread from their hands, he still mm. definitely caused it. Yeah. And the point is, really, that Cromwell and most Englishmen despise the Irish at this stage as base savages and enemies of faith. It's only the levellers, again, who express sympathy and common cause with the Irish. Mm. Otherwise, that's sort of what drives it, this real hatred yeah, and the, and this is them with victory over the Irish from hundreds of years of mm. failure. But nothing excuses that. Do you know the only way I'm not going to give him ten is because he hasn't had sex with a nun? That is the only argument we can have against Cromwell, is that in other matters he is a Puritan. He doesn't have personal juicy no, scandal. No, but he is. But he does execute the king and massacre yeah, Ireland let's not forget, he to an extent. Him. Yeah, we've forgotten about that <laughs> no, now. The king. He has already <laughs> killed the king at this stage. He's got, actually, he's got to be ten. He kills the king and then pops off to Ireland to commit massacres which are so strong that 300 years later it's still inciting nationalists against Yeah, England. that's... It's phenomenal. I mean, he's doing really well. In a... In a... In a being bad. <laughs> in being bad. <laughs> ten. I miss ten for me as well, so that's 20 for Scandal. He's scoring well. He is. I... If it was a school report... I would mention the nuns, but still 10 out of 10. Subjectivity. This is the trickiest one, I think, of all to judge, because he goes from pretty wild extremes mm. in subjectivity. First of all, the good. The main thing for which he was initially remembered and praised um, is the sort of promotion of the power of Parliament over the monarchy. He, A lot of people were like the idea of the fact that he abolishes the monarchy and says, no, it's Parliament that mm. rules, not a hereditary system. Either way, the fact that he's stopping there being a sort of an all-powerful hereditary system, certainly, um, would get uh, favour from people. 
Parliament and the army are odds throughout, but it's Cromwell's leadership that's able to hold this all together and stop it descending into some kind of anarchy mm. in England, which could very easily could have done. We don't get the French Revolution yeah. and the terrors yeah. and things like this. He supports written constitution where power is divided between protector, council, parliament. So he's trying to check potential abuses of power. And for all the cancelling parliaments, he's not a military dictator. He's got the full support of the army. He could have really taken over and had some kind of sort of rule of fear and secret police and all this sort of thing. Yeah. But for the most part, he doesn't. And he does tend to choose another parliament when he gets rid of the last one. Yeah, he's just he's just tyrannical, the fact that he does abolish it in the mm. same way that Charles I. But he doesn't just replace it with, right, himself, I'll just, yeah. it'd just be me now. Mm. And he turns down the king thing. Mm. Which you'd have thought if he was. Yeah. Mm. Now, this is going to sound a little odd after what we just said about what he does in Ireland, but in religious matters and freedom of conscience, he's very tolerant. Mm. Frequently advocates religious toleration and freedom of conscience. During the Civil War, it's one of the big points of conflict he has with the Presbyterians and the Earls, is that he wants religious toleration mm. for all, rather than a limited settlement. So would he allow Catholics in the UK, in um, England? Catholics are the exception, right? as we've mm. seen quite graphically in Ireland. Catholics are not worthy of toleration, but everybody else is, even the Jews. They're back, are they? The Jews are invited back. He's aware of the contribution they make to the Dutch economy. So in 1657, he repeals Edward I's Edict of Expulsion, which dated mm. back to 1290. So for the first time in nearly 300 years, Jews are invited back, and it's Cromwell. 300? For nearly 400 years? 1290. Oh, yes, sorry, nearly 400, yes. Well, well, that's, I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's a, a drop in the ocean in his favour. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We do see some pretty limited, but nevertheless, reforms um, under the government. England, uh, English is made the official language of public records. From Latin? Rather than French or Latin, and in court as well. French still? A little bit of French in um, sort of official court business and proceedings, so everyone can understand it now. Mm. The Act of Oblivion in 1652 forgives the rancour and evil of the civil wars. So they are kind of saying, apart from the top royalist types... That's, you know, bygones be bygones. Yeah. We're all friends now. Poor laws function a bit better than they had done before. There's a bit less corruption in government than under the Stuarts. And England becomes an international trading power. And they have very favourable peace with the Dutch. So England's right. quite a pros- yeah. you know, decent, prosperous, powerful country. Mm. But, I mean, much like the French lose some influence during the period of the revolution because they're focusing on themselves yeah. and sorting their country back out. There must have been a... What was it, ten years of upheaval? Yes. There's a lot of buts. Yeah. Come on, so too. So now we'll go to the opposite extreme. First of all, Puritanism. The moral laws are not particularly favoured by the common man. Things such as adultery and incest are punishable by death, mm. although rarely enforced. Fornicators receive three months in prison. Right. Prostitutes are whipped and branded with the letter B for board. Right, B-A-W-D. Yeah, so right. bought B on their head. Swearing fines are rigidly imposed. Swearing fines? Yeah. Wow. And entertainment, basically fun, is pretty much banned. And Christmas, but so you can read psalms. Theatres are closed down. Mm. No more plays. And yes, Christmas, considered a Catholic invention with uh, trappings of popery, so it's formally banned. 
So you have to go to work. You have to have business on Christmas Day. No feasting or celebrating or anything like that. Hugely unpopular. Pro-Christmas riots break out in several cities. In Canterbury, the city was held by rioters for weeks. And they decorated the doorways with uh, boughs of holly. Well, that's... that's, um, He's literally the Grinch. He literally bans Christmas. I'd never... Yeah, brave man. Mm, I mean, well, more Parliament sort of pushes that. Again, this Mm. is their... Uh, Puritan beliefs. As we said before, he has a lot of conflict with Parliament, and mm. in a sense is really quite surprisingly comparable to Charles I. The rump Parliament, he was so dissatisfied with it that he broke it up in 1653, calling everyone whoremasters and drunkards. Mm. The Protectorate, the first Parliament, was presenting all these difficult bills that were going to cause all sorts of trouble. And because they got it set up in the Constitution, there was a set length of the Parliament... There was a point at which it was going to end. And Cromwell decided to calculate the months by the moon instead of um, you know, norm by the sun, yeah. which meant he could dissolve it 12 days early before the bills mm-hmm. had a chance to be put forward. Uh, Quite canny, but yeah. not very uh, yeah. democratic. No, certainly. Penruddock's Rebellion, where um, he tried to divide England into military districts, mm. which wasn't very mm. popular. Though, as you say, he's kind of like Charles I, and in all of his dealings... Although he isn't becoming a military dictator, he is still nevertheless deciding how Parliament will operate with the backing of an army. Yeah, yeah. He's everything but. He's just mm. just just the right side of it. Yes. Mm. But it's, it's not smelling of roses. No. He also has a lot of expedience to get his way. So he had the self-denying ordinance where he removes his opponents during the Civil War so they can't hold a commission in the army. Mm. But an exception is made for him. Mm-hmm. Pride's Purge, where he isn't there at the time, but rather conveniently, all the people that oppose what he wants to do are stopped from coming into Parliament, and then he comes south and it's like, oh, has this happened? Well, we better go on with it. Yeah. Um, Charles I's trial, essentially illegal, but they put put it in place to ensure the execution happens. So he's conveniently absent a lot of the time, but at the same time he benefits, implicitly supports it, uses a lot of slightly illegal means, which go against the liberties that he's meant to be... Mm. Texting. Yeah, not so hot. And he's a bit of a hypocrite. Totally. We said earlier about the Puritanism, he himself is not a puritanical killjoy. He likes the soldierly jests and the boards and the singing of the psalms. First opera in England is put on under Cromwell's watch. He enjoys games, he enjoys culture. I thought he banned it all. Banned theatre. Oh, I see, right. Uh... The intolerance, of course, have we said, he acts against the radical sects like the diggers and the ranters, and of course the hatred of the Irish, and that's not a particularly tolerant no, display. No. And although he rejects the crown, he does rather embrace the trappings of monarchy. So as protector, he is addressed as Your Highness. Really? Um, he takes up ceremonial pomp and opulence, enjoys hunting at uh, Hampton Court, as did all... Yeah. His uh, predecessors. 1657, he's reinvested as protector after rejecting the crown at Westminster Hall, but on St Edward's chair, with full coronation regalia, except a crown. So he's there with an Auburn scepter. Well, and he's buried with an Auburn scepter in a very lavish ceremony, which was based upon the funeral of James I. See, again, he's everything but, isn't he? He's just on the right mm. side. He, it's like he's thinking about his his legacy. And, of course, his legacy fails. The Commonwealth basically doesn't outlive him. It, it was based on his character, his personality. He isn't able to create something which is long-lasting. So, mm. you know, less than two years after his death, the monarchy is restored. 
And he's got his head cut off. And he's got his head cut off. Or someone has. Someone has. Someone's <laughs> got their head cut off. I think someone else in his position at this time, hmm. given the um, same situation, perhaps would have done a little better. Well, or would someone else in that time have been unable to hold it all together and it would have descended into anarchy and the Third Civil War and... Yeah, well, what would be interesting... Maybe that's where he really succeeded, and he did sort of, he did hold together... What a potentially anarchic situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true, that's true, but that was his own dealings that brought it there. Indeed. I mean... He just well, left it as it was. <laughs> well, exactly, so it would be interesting how um, uh, Charles II fares, so Indeed true next week, but yes. meanwhile, I can't give him a very good... It's got to be less three. than... Yeah, it's got to be low. Um, I think I'm probably giving him a two. Yeah. Subjectivity is about would you want to be a subject, and I don't think it'd be an awful lot of fun. I don't think it'd be a lot of fun. At the very least, it wouldn't have been a lot of fun. At the worst, in Ireland, you'd probably be dead. That's a good point, and we can't lose sight of But yeah, it's would you like to be a subject? Hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you probably, if you haven't died in the Civil War, you're probably not having fun. Yeah. Right. Longevity. For the first time, we're going to have to debate longevity. Huh? The Commonwealth lasts from 1649 to 1660... But of course, Cromwell. That's 11 years. Debate over. Well, Cromwell, of course, dies in uh, 1658. Um, Which would be 10.75. No, it'd be 9.75 years. But. Yeah. Cromwell is only protector, i.e., actually ruler, Mm. from 1653 to 1658. And then it carries on after his death for. Yeah, so prior. To 1653, we just got the rump parliament. There isn't really a technical leader. He's sort of de facto the main man, but he's mainly he's fighting about here and there. Yeah. It's only 1653 when he really actually takes charge. But when you say he takes charge, he was in charge. He was in charge, but he's not protector before 1653. Well, the, we've had this situation before with kings when they've been away and not coronated until they get back. Hmm. But, but that they, is different, though, because that is where you had the system. And this was the thing with the system, where initially they were they were not thinking Cromwell is our is yeah. The they're not waiting leader. for him to be protector. They were just they're just we don't have anyone in control anymore. It's this wonderful parliamentary mm-hmm. system where there isn't someone in charge. Well, then, I, yeah, definitely. Then in that case, it's from when he is crowned. Yes, <laughs> when he is. So, so it's 1653 to 58, which is 4.75 years. That's shorter than I Which thought. is, well, because initially we thought it'd be from when Charles died. Mm. So we type that in and we get 1.49. It's very low. Which is very low. Dynasty, not the programme. He has, uh, there were nine children in total they had with his wife, but only five of them survive. Mm. So he has five surviving children. How have we done this with kings? Is it those... It's just those that survive. Just the surviving ones. And then we leave done. it to the next episode to see what happens. Yeah. Okay. The fact that it all falls apart. Yeah, and it matter. was... But actually his son does, you know... Yeah. And um, it was a hereditary thing. Yeah. So, at the moment, he's got five kids that could do his stuff. Which gives him a score there of 8.35. That's pretty good. So his total is 54.34, which is very good. That would be the uh, sixth highest score. Really? That we've got. So, that's his life and reign, but we've got one more task ahead of us. Does he have that special something, that great achievement, that lasting legacy, that star quality that we call... Rex Factor! Probably does. I mean, it's really difficult. Well, plus side, of course, he goes from being a depressed farmer Mm. in the 1630s to 
conqueror of England, Scotland, and Ireland, and pretty much the most powerful ruler the country's ever had. Yeah. And he's this incredibly powerful figure that still resonates down the ages. Came 10th in the 100 Greatest Britons uh, poll. Oh, that's controversial. Yep. <laughs> he's this incredibly... I mean, how to achieve that from a farmer? Okay, a farmer he was largely gentry status, really, where he's from. But to come from pretty much nowhere to ruling the country, ruling the country with a standing, efficient army at his back, which he's revolutionised the yeah, army yeah. as well. And he's got his religious way. Yeah, um, it's it's really good, but it's just like William the Conqueror. Because it's a total conquest, so it's a total change, you feel, for some reason, some loyalty to the old system, and I don't want to give it to him because he's conquered it. There, Against but... what we've got, um, Irish massacres is pretty bad. And you think, can you give it to someone who... Who have we given it to that has done something? Well, that's the thing we have. I mean, William I, of course, there was the Harrying of the North, Richard the Lionheart, he had that systematic yeah, yeah, yeah. execution of prisoners... Um, I mean, Edward I to an extent with Wales. Edward I was pretty pretty cruel. And he got rid of the Jews as well. I mean, that's bad. Henry VIII was a bit of a nasty dictator. Yeah. Cutting people's uh, heads off. I mean, we, I mean, what does the Rex Factor mean? Does it, it's someone... It's hard to define. I mean, that's how we introduce it all the time, this undefinable quality. Mm. Um, so with that beautifully vague... <laughs> um, uh, uh, definition... You can be a mass-murdering, psychopathic... Legend. Yes, um, <laughs> but we've got the Puritanism and all that stuff cancelling Christmas. The Commonwealth fails ultimately. Yeah, that's what it's all about, and it fails. But can I see him up there with Henry the Fifth, Edward the First, William, um, Henry the Eighth? But he's so different that the what he achieved, what he proposed, and what he achieved. Mm. So he wanted to set himself apart. So if we've got a mould for a Rex factor. Mm. He would be annoyed that he'd be in it. He he hates the fact thing. that he got this episode. Yeah. He oh, won't play factor. He would. Here's the biggie against Oliver Cromwell. Mm. When somebody says to him, "Would you like to be king?" he says, "No." So, Oliver, would you like Rex Factor? No. I think he'd say that as well. So there you are. He can't Oliver. be. He can't He's... win the Rex Factor because he isn't a king. There you go. I mean, we'd love to give it to you, Oliver, but you reject <laughs> it, my friend. So, and by the way, you uh, you were nasty to the Irish. You certainly were. So that by the uh, by definition, by default, Oliver Cromwell was not king. He can't win the Rex Factor. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a no. See you next time. Bye. <laughs>